Welcome to the Renegade Economist, broadcasting from a balcony in Brunswick Heads. We're with Kelvin Daly, who was on last week's show, uh, as we uh, ventured out to a biochar project. And I hinted he had a, a very interesting project underway, and he certainly does. We're here to talk about the the Brunswick Heads Eco Village, of which Kelvin is the land steward and conceptualizer of. So Kelvin, give us a rundown. What sort of project do you have in mind here? Yeah, good morning, Carl. Basically, we're, we are on a farm that's uh, 125 acres, of which we're um, working on an integrated eco-village style development where, where we can uh, use both housing and light industry and education uh, co-relating with uh, renewables investment, uh, renewables precinct and a light industrial area that, um, that incorporates food production and value-added food production. So in that situation where we're currently launching a, um, an educational platform that runs for 14 months um, and it's over 14 days and that's for a total of $1,000, so that's about $71 a day, priced so that it's affordable and achievable in terms of uh, people's desire to, um, to follow a global eco-village network uh, educational platform that, that sort of helps foster community and understanding around um, the various aspects of uh, co-living and um, it assists with the with the formation of clusters so that groups actually um, coagulate with um, with like-minded people with similar interests and um, and form uh, clusters with common houses so that there's shared meals and um, and uh, child minding and other opportunities there so intergenerational uh, support and so on so the, the word co-living is often bandied about, but you're taking specific measures to ensure that that interaction is, is part of the landscape, part of the design. Correct, yeah. And, and as a prerequisite for anyone who's wishing to reside uh, in the eco-village, they're required to do the, the, the training, the 14-month the training. And, so, um, and that means that the agreements that are formed in that training will, um, will help guide the decision-making and hopefully um, foster healthier relationships where there's less conflict and uh, where there is conflict, there's better tools to resolve those. And so you're, you're aiming for how many homes and, and what, how's the community going to evolve over time? Well, at the moment, we've been working with the constraints of the land. We, we're very blessed to have beautiful uh, elevated um, fertile land that uh, is 50 metres above sea level and is overlooking Brunswick Heads with a beautiful vista of the ocean, watching the whales breaching as they head up the coast. And... Um, at this stage, it's, it, we've, we've been exploring areas rich in biodiversity and, 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 and so forth so that we can improve on those areas and also utilise other areas for food production in a more intensive and productive way than the cattle that are currently grazing the land now. Okay, and how then are you going to select people to live in these clusters? How are those decisions going to be made? Well, that's that's part of this guiding principle of the Global Eco-Village Network uh, educational platform, which is Gaia Education. So we're working with an educator who trained at Finhorn in Scotland to become an accredited educator. His name's Shane Silvenspring, and he's a local who lives up here with his family, and um, he's going to deliver the, um, the training over the 14 months. And the intention there is that uh, 
through him applying his training and and uh, and working with the information that that's acquired through the registration process. There's a survey that the participants are required to fill out, which assists us not in anything to do with marketing or any of that sort of stuff, but more that it guides the um, the direction or the focus of the educational program, and it also guides the information we feel we need to then submit a planning proposal that is not reflective of a developer or landowner's needs or desires, but those of the participants who are wishing to become residents. So it's a participatory process in designing the community people are going to live in. I believe so, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's working with an internationally accredited framework that's been successful in hundreds of countries around the world. So, so um, for us, it was kind of let's not try and reinvent the wheel. Let's identify what has worked and continues to work and support eco-villages around the world. We're blessed with a beautiful climate and uh, rich red soil here. And um, we just need to explore further um, the constraints and the best use and then, uh, and then consider how we could live well you know, within our means, uh, addressing our own waste and, um, and producing our own food, water and energy. It's incredible that you you can address your own waste, and so that's waste water, or are you talking rubbish as well? Well, there's a in the initial stages where we're trying to work with the constraints of of, of managing our own waste water, so grey and black water. So that's certainly something that's a, a, a high focus for us, um, and that's the intention that we'll set for ourselves um, in terms of. Um, waste as in landfill waste the intention there is to have central located points which means that you're i guess uh, in, you're more conscious of 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 both the the consumables you bring in and the waste that you bring out so so from that point of view that's that's one of the areas that will be explored about whether people want for instance at the entrance to the cluster all the bins to be arranged there so that you're physically carrying your stuff in and physically carrying your stuff out which would encourage you to waste less compost more etc so that's part of the educative process it's part of the survey to um, to address people's wants needs and desires and then for them as a, a cluster group to make decisions you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and this week we're discussing uh, community land trusts and eco villages uh, in Brunswick Heads with Kelvin Daly who has um, uh, a very interesting project underway and Kelvin you mentioned earlier um, this concept of land steward so uh, behind this project there's some quite radical economic uh, principles um, can you run through some of the the cost saving measures you're going to be implementing to ensure uh, this land trust survives the generations to come yeah well I think the first thing that we've considered is um, is the perceived market value at rezone and we've been exploring what a discounted rate of sale would be to a not-for-profit cooperative with conditions in place that restrict the future use of the land to being a community-based not-for-profit exploration of, of and a live, work and learn precinct. So we're encouraging lifelong learning and the ability to, to, to work locally and, uh, and generate uh, electricity which is sold to the grid and a number of other sort of endeavours. So, so from that point of view, the intention is is by putting land in in a, in a community land trust that it's no longer for speculation, that it's held in perpetuity at 
that reduced value, which would attract then investors to, um, to assist with ethical investment in a community-based program where their risk is minimised by the fact that uh, the land holding is worth far more than what was paid and their investment would assist with, with roads, infrastructure and, and buildings. So, uh, and then of course once they're built, the intention is that the residents would uh, put up a, um, a redeemable bond and then they would be able to be involved with the design of their cluster so that there's, there's economies of scale and, and some degree of uniformity or, or, or um, continuity in each cluster. And, um, and in the common house there's, there's uh, things like common kitchen and, and living room and as well as a, a um, accommodation for, for guests so that it actually generates uh, revenue and also brings outsiders in who are welcomed into that community and feel welcomed versus uh, like guests who, um, who, who aren't welcomed in. So, so yeah, that's the intention there is to, is to try and set it up in such a way that, that um, it's a lifelong lease and uh, all the residents have done their training and continue to do their personal development work so that some of the, uh, the failures that we've seen in the past could be addressed. And then on the monetary side as well, you're interested in utilising a, a low cost base for the community. Yeah, correct. We're certainly pointing very heavily uh, at affordable housing because at the moment, uh, I think Anglicare just did a report for Byron Shire and said that there is zero stock of affordable housing so council has just released an initiative to um, to erect some uh, emergency crisis style houses which are in the form of dongers to deal with the the, the situation and I guess what we're hoping to um, work with them and everyone in the state government is in terms of uh, meeting that that need in a more long-term and um, equitable strategy yeah and certainly listeners it's incredible nearly everyone i've met up here um, is uh, struggling to find a house uh, there's so much change coming through the community with airbnb investors squeezing out the typical rental stock uh, on top of uh, lots of development designed for you know, high-end users rather than the local community. And I think that's why uh, when the uh, media story for Kelvin's project hit the press last week, there was so much interest amongst the community is this is the sort of thing we really, really need. So it's great to see that you're taking on uh, this role of uh, conceptualising and then hopefully holding this land in perpetuity for future generations in this uh, evolving community. And not only that, you'll be able to walk to work uh, in this uh, in this thriving little community. So, Kelvin, um, wh- what can people do if they're interested in this project and do live in the area? There are people listening via podcast all around Australia and the world, so uh, perhaps someone will be interested in following up. Sure. Well, um, well our website's about to go live on, uh, on Wednesday the 13th and uh, at the moment last count yes yeah there was over 500 people that are waiting on an email alert to um, to know that the site's live so they can jump on and, and find the information that they're, they're craving and obviously uh, those that are inspired and enthused will will then follow through to the registration process and um, there's a bunch of frequently asked questions there that help sort of again inform um, and then the next step is to complete the survey. And once the survey is complete, you get an email response back saying you've successfully completed it and uh, here's the, the payment portal for the $1,000. 
Um, we've spoken to, to NILS, which is No Interest Loan Scheme at the Community Centre in Byron, who, uh, who are very receptive to this form of education. And uh, for those uh, who, who are going to struggle to find the $1,000 straight up, they're certainly uh, willing and wanting to, to be involved in that conversation. So we've tried to make, I guess, the right inquiries for the right people so that people are empowered and, uh, and in a position to come and do the training, whether they have the funds or, the, or, or, or that for the future investment in the, um, in the eco-village or not because this is about building community, not, not about prescriptively forcing people down the path of uh, you must live here. So, so we're aware that, that this is a form of personal development and community building that's much needed and we're fortunate to have you know, Shane Silvenspring living in the area who has the skills, uh, internationally accredited skills to, to share. So, so our job is to, uh, to encourage people to get involved in that process and have a voice. Well, Kelvin Daly, thanks so much for joining us here on The Renegade Economist. You're very welcome, Carl. You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. So welcome back to The Renegade Economist, and uh, I'm feeling... um, rather chuffed because we have so many wise old heads in our movement and as I travel around Australia I'm looking forward to keying in with a few of them and one of them is uh, Colin Cook who I thought was about my age of 44 and it turns (laughs) out he's actually 92 or thereabouts so Colin welcome to the Renegade Economist. Oh I'm pleased to host you Carl. Well, it's a beautiful view here in Bangalore, New South Wales. And we were just talking about your background as uh, someone who emigrated from England and your experience with the Commons. Yes, well, well, that was interesting. I came out to Tasmania when I was uh, mid-50s. But uh, after a couple of decades, I realised that I, I was really missing the Commons of England, you know, tra- tract of land where these days anyone can walk their dog as, as of right. As it happened, I was a commoner of Ashdown Forest um, in, in Sussex, and that was the, um, common land of 3,000 acres, which at one time was part of John of Gaunt's estate. And the thing with the commons is that there is real, really no management structure behind it. Well, well the, the, there is a management stru- structure now, but it was always um, a, a local a, arrangement and um, it, it had to be codified in due, due course. Like, uh, my rights as a commoner was to uh, be able to graze animals on, on the forest as, many, um, as much stock as, as I could winter on my own land and I could take... Um, Bracken for bedding for them and uh, heather for, for thatching. And John Locke's famous statement of leaving as much for others as as what you were taking from the commons, how was that uh, overseen? Well, well the, the, in many cases there were c- community boards. I suppose these days you call them boards of management, but they weren't. There were v- various roles for the different people in the community to see 
to um, help manage, but but it varied, you know, from one part of Britain to another. I mean, um, there are remnants of commons all, all over England now. But the thing that really struck me was when I heard a um, talk by Dr. Mary Graham, an, an Aboriginal um, an academic, and she was saying that in an Aboriginal philosophy, to hold different concepts in your mind at one same time, maybe conflicting concepts, was not difficult, whereas a Western philosophy was either black or white, alive or dead. And it struck me that this was a precise parallel between the enclosure movement, which was uh, in, in its heyday in, in England, a white settlement, the exact parallel between the enclosure of land and the use of it as commons. And it's uh, sort of continuing with that train of thought. It seemed to me that but because the uh, movement of enclosure of co common land was re really at its peak between 1750 and 1850, that these white settlement of Australia was in fact a, an extension of the enclosure movement in England. I mean this was the establishment mindset that, that commons were a bad thing and uh, the proper way to manage land, run an outfit, was to have um, that land enclosed and properly managed. And so with enclosures we mean that these uh, this common land where people could create food, um, uh, run their, their sheep and, and so forth, uh, became locked up and sold off. And so with that, it reduced the productive capacity of communities. And from that, uh, their independence from the, the wider market system was undermined and uh, people found it more difficult to actually make ends meet. Yes, that, that's exactly right. But there was some justification for some enclosures in England because the Industrial Re Revolution pr prompted many people to move to the cities for, for factory work rather than the uh, rural work, which is pr pretty hard. So there was a need to increase the efficiency of agriculture or increase the output of the agricultural reason. But uh, yes, there was one reason but uh, for the enclosures, but the other was just plain uh, sort of greed and management acquisition. Yeah. And as we talk back about that era, of course, the Corn Law debates were, were rife at that time over... Uh, similar sort of issues that still exist in America with extensive farming subsidies and how that was uh, distorting uh, agricultural investment and uh, not really benefiting the wider community. Well, well that's right. Yeah. But um, it seemed to me really that, um, that Australia in 1788 was really a vast uh, conglomeration of of uh, Aboriginal commons and uh, the, the commoners, the, uh, the Aboriginal population, weren't, weren't viewed as they had been in England. There was some compensation paid in England when commons were enclosed, but this wasn't the case in uh, uh, Australia. And it, it seemed to me too that it would have been much better if instead of native title, which 
has a Western legalistic term about it. Um, the, the Aboriginal lands were re really recognised as Aboriginal commons, uh, where uh, the different people could have different rights, you know, as in the in English commons. Yes, well, it would certainly be a step forward to what we have today, where very quickly after native title law was established, John Howard uh, rolled out... Uh, I can't remember the exact terminology. Apologies, Robbie Thorpe, but um, yeah, there, there was a was a, a land title bill that was pushed through that that ensured that native title was the lowest form of land title in Australia. So it had very little legal uh, support. Yeah, but that's fascinating th um, thinking that um, you know the enclosures uh, in the UK led to people being arrested um, because they couldn't. Um, uh, expand their flocks onto the commons and so they perhaps stole off someone and, and then ended up in prison and ended up all the way over here um, and then when they got here you're saying um, again that there were these barriers to being able to use the land um, properly as well there's a fi fine book by um, oh but uh, Boyce on the uh, called um Van Diemen's Land on the hi history of uh, the settlement in uh, uh, ta Tasmania before it was called Tasmania, in, in which he re recounts how the uh, some of the prisoners came out, thought they'd just arrived on the edge of a vast co common, you know, pl pl plenty of game, um, you know, for, for everyone, and they shared it for a number of years with the uh, ad Aboriginals. Mm, that's very interesting. It's all right. They, they, they shared it with some, with the uh, and, and Aboriginals until uh, MacArthur was sent down there to put a stop to all this uh, that activity and uh, really generate a servile population to serve the, uh, the new settlers. Mm, well, it's uh, it's just so frustrating in a way to have these examples of prior history of how the community could live harmoniously with nature uh, with a, a strong element of common sense dictating behavior rather than uh, rules and regulations and uh, here we were landing in Australia um, stealing on this land and uh, again not paying respect to uh, the, the traditional owners and, and how they related to nature and ensured that there was enough for everyone. Yes, yes. And that, that really there's been developed such a sort of hard, well you call it a hard line attitude to real estate um, in, in Australia which is so different from the uh, an Aboriginal approach that it's very difficult to see how we can get a, a common uh, an idea of a, how we re relate to land. Um, at the moment, it's um, all related to uh, really money and possession, the, the Western idea, whereas the Aboriginal one was, was originally a much more open communal uh, concept mm, and I've heard stories of how you know that the 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 meal of the night um, whoever brought in the kangaroo um, would would cut it up according to the various quality of meats and they would be shared around um, according to an agreed-upon social sort of structure 
and uh, the bounty was shared in that that manner. And so, uh, yeah, there's so much um, here for us to learn. But uh, yeah, we're told we should only listen to uh, the bankers of um, the Commonwealth Bank and uh, Macquarie Bank and so forth. But uh, yeah, it's some of these timeless um, examples that we're going to have to look back to as uh, the pressures of robotics, demographics, inequality climate change um, really start hitting us over the head in the next uh, uh, summer or so (laughs) (laughs) who knows what's coming our way with uh, what's on in the news at the moment so colin cook how could we find a way to uh, incorporate both custodianship and possession well i've been um, an adherent of henry george's uh, idea of a, a universal land value taxation uh, system and it seems to me that you you can't turn the clock back but this is one way that we could move forward that uh, if we each paid according to the value of our land that we occupy that we want for exclusive use if we did pay a land value tax it would remind us of the uh, real value of the bit of land that we occupy, and it would give us a, a different, you know, it would give us a different um, attitude to the land. Um, it would remind us when we paid this tax that, that we had an obligation to, to the land, but also um, if it wasn't worth that to us, that then I think what you're saying is good, though. If we, if we, if we felt that um, the land wasn't as worth as the the leasehold fee we were paying or the land value tax fee we were paying, then we would move somewhere else. And so maybe someone else w- would see that th- this locational value was, was uh, more suitable because it was closer to schools and perhaps um, you don't need schools anymore. Yeah, yes, that, 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 that's exactly right, really. One, one of the beauties of a uh, land value tax, of course, is that it's voluntary. You you don't have to pay. You can get someone else to pay it by the idea of moving away from that bit of land and the person who buys your property, he would take on this obligation of the land value tax. And I, said, so I think it just somehow over time would result in a di- different attitude, one of uh, respect and, uh, and appreciation rather than one of simply possession and number of dollars you might get if you sell it. Well, Colin Cook, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Right, been been a pleasure talking to you, Carl. And that was Colin Cook, the 92-year-old. So good to convince him to come on to the Renegade Economists. That's why I was feeling a little chuffed. And uh, I really like that line of his that the enclosures of the commons in the UK accelerated... Uh, the need for colonization here in Australia. So the land story always has uh, importance when it comes to economic history. And uh, again, we see it uh, that uh, people couldn't uh, live off the land anymore. So some of them stole food and got arrested, sent to Australia, da-da-da. Thanks very much for listening to The Renegade Economist. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au. 
check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au in the next 24 hours. And always uh, keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter accounts at Earthsharing. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Keep an eye on your wallets. Keep an eye on the policy forward. Let's change this economic system.